Well, would you take your Bibles and let's turn near the beginning of your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. That may seem strange, but let's turn there. Leviticus chapter 1 will be our text this morning, as, and as is our custom, if you are able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall, fly the, uh, then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs they shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves and pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out of the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, this is your word. Would you now take it, meet it with your spirit in our hearts to mold us and make us into the men, women, and children that you've called us to be. Oh Lord, would you put yourself on display today? Would you put the wonder and the glory of Christ on display? Would you exalt his name and may we look to him? And may the gospel of Christ be precious. Do in us what you will. Move us, mold us, make us into the men, women, children you'd have us to be for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. My mother-in-law has a particular way that she responds when hearing something that she doesn't necessarily agree with. Or, more for our case and our context this morning, hearing something she may not completely understand. She does this. Hmm. And then she just looks at you. Hmm. 
Well, some of us might hear the first chapter of Leviticus or even the fact that we're going to be preaching through this book of the Bible and you may respond with, hmm, what does this have to do with us? Why are we studying this book? Why go through this book of the Old Testament? I mean, I can understand Genesis, of course, because of creation and all the neat things that happened there, right? Maybe even Exodus, because then we've got all the plagues and then we have Israel coming out of Egypt. And well, that's all pretty cool. I can understand that. Maybe Daniel, because after all, that's where Daniel and the lion's den happens. But, but Leviticus? Really? A book that probably many of you have never even read why? It's interesting though, Leviticus, did you know that Leviticus used to be the first book that Jewish children would study in the synagogue? It was that important to the people of God in the Old Testament. You know, but again, we might say, well, yeah, Chris, but that's Jewish children. We're not Jewish children. We're Christians. We stand on this side of the cross. Why? Why would we read it? Why would we study it? What's it to do with us? Let me answer it this way. You are here this morning to gather together as the people of God in the presence of God. So consider this question. Why are you here? Don't answer that out loud, but consider the question. Why are you here? Or maybe a second question. How are you here? With the people of God, in the presence of God. How is it that you, sinners like me, can gather together in the presence of an all-holy God. Do we consider that question, I wonder? Do we consider that question as we walk through those doors into this place to gather together as God's people in His presence? Do we consider the price that has been paid so that you and I might approach the all-holy God it's not likely. That's not likely what we consider when we walk into worship. Sometimes late, even. Carrying our coffees as if we are going to a sit-down visit with a client. It's probably not what we consider. What was the cost that I might enter into the presence of God? Well, this is something that Israel considered. They considered it on a normal basis. The psalmist asks in Psalm 15, O Yahweh, O Lord God, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? This is something Israel considered. And you see, this is the desire of the people of God, is it not? To be with God, to be in His presence. For after all, it should be. It should be our desire. 
This is God's purpose. We see it throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, this unifying theme. I will be a God to you and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. God with his people into all eternity. Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God's purpose in creation is to have a people who belong to Him. Now even as we say that, many of us might even think, and we do think, we think often and much of the glory of God, and well, we should our first catechism, uh, catechism question and answer, as a matter of fact, is this. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Very good. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All things, all things are to the glory of God. And if we were to ask this question, maybe in that way, what is an overarching theme of the Scriptures? What is a Scripture's purpose? We might answer it in that way, right? God's glory. God's glory. And we'd be right in saying so, but we'd also be missing something. We'd be missing the second part of that catechism answer. And to enjoy Him forever. Because you'd see we'd be missing part of the story. We'd be missing how it is that God brings glory to himself. We would be missing how God's glory is put on display. The story of the Bible is how God has a people that belong to him for all eternity. For after all, he created a people, Adam and Eve, who walked with him and who talked with him, who enjoyed the presence of God in Eden. And by the way, that word Eden there means pleasure, paradise, delight, enjoyment. Is it any wonder that we answer our catechism question that way? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our hope is to be in the presence of God where we delight in him and he in us. But Adam and Eve, who walked with him, who talked with him, but a people who, though they were in the place of God, with God, fell and sinned against their Creator. A people who were then kicked out of the garden, out of the presence of God, heading east away from His presence, a people unholy, a people unfit, a people who rebelled against God, a people who were taken captive, put in bondage in Egypt, a people then rescued from their bondage, a people who then wandered, a people who received God's law, a people who then built a tabernacle for God, for Him to dwell by His own command, and yet a people who could not enter that tabernacle you see not even Moses the end of Exodus reads like this then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle how is it that God's people 
when not even Moses can enter, will be able to enter the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, this is what Leviticus is about. Leviticus points us to this answer. A sacrifice must be made, blood spilt, that would wash and cleanse and restore and renew his people. You see, the story of the Bible is about how God reconciles his people to himself and secures for them a place with him for all eternity. It is about how God's people can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what the story of the Bible is all about. And Leviticus is a book about the same. Michael Morales puts it this way, and you'll hear me reference him several times. He wrote a biblical, the, uh, biblical theological book on the book of Leviticus. It's fantastic. Who shall ascend? Uh, can't remember the last of it, but that's how it starts. Michael Morales, who shall ascend? Blah, blah, blah. It's something like that. Um, but he puts it this way. He says, its dominating concern is the way in which humanity may come to dwell in the house of God. That's the concern of Leviticus. How is it that a sinful people can dwell in the house of an all-holy God? You know, this study that we're studying together may stretch us, and I trust that it will. And I hope that it does. My prayer is, is that it will stretch us. But my prayer, and, and there will be some things that are difficult. Because after all, we, we're separated from Leviticus by, by thousands of years. We're separated from Leviticus, whereas they are on that side of the cross looking forward. We are on this side of the cross looking backward. We're, celebrated, we're, we're separated from Leviticus culturally speaking, religiously speaking. And yet, I don't think, and I don't want it to be because of its difficulty, because I don't actually think it's that difficult. But my prayer is, is that will, it will stretch us, due in fact to its simplicity. Due to the fact that there are parts of it that are primitive. Due to the fact that there are parts of it that are actually obscene. Maybe even brutal. And gruesome. So my hope is. That it stretches us to see. That it is those things. Because of the weightiness of sin. Before an all holy God. So my prayer is twofold. That we would begin to see the weightiness of our own sin before this all-holy God and the length and the width and the breadth and the depth to which God has gone in Christ Jesus to take care of that sin. That is my prayer. My prayer is that Christ becomes all the more glorious to you through this study, even as the knowledge of our own sin becomes all the more heinous. In Leviticus chapter 16, the climax of this book, verse 30 says, 
For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Leviticus points us to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin. And so we're going to begin, even as Leviticus does, it's almost as if there's no real introduction to Leviticus. Moses jumps right in, doesn't he? But there is an introduction. It is called Genesis and Exodus. That is the introduction to Leviticus. So let's start with chapter 1 here. And we're going to begin there. And it may, may seem strange to arrange it in the way that I'm going to arrange it. If you've got your bulletin, you can tell there in the insert that we're going to look at chapter 1 using three very simple headings. Uh, one adverb and two conjunctions. That's it. Then if, and since. This isn't going to be a grammar lesson, but I trust that the simplicity of this outline will lead us to the wonder and glory of the gospel of Christ. Let's look first to the then. And it may seem strange even that we're going to start with that word then, because if you noticed from my reading and from many of your Bibles, the text begins simply with, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And you may say, where are you getting that word then from? Well, if you have a New American Standard Bible or you have a Holman Translation Bible, you'll see that they actually, those translations actually start with a then where it says, then the Lord called Moses. And the reason for that addition is because it's not really an addition at all. In the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, this book begins with what is called, this is going to be fun, okay, so a little bit of grammar here, but it's Hebrew grammar, not English grammar. It begins with what's called a vav consecutive. So what in the world does that matter for us or to us? It's just one Hebrew letter added before the verb, but it matters. It matters. Here's why it matters. You know, we often leave out of our Bible reading this book of Leviticus because after all, we might ask again, what is all, what do we, what do we have to do with all of these sacrifices? It's too complicated. We don't understand it. And what do these sacrifices have to do with us? And yet, this Vav consecutive alerts us to the fact that this book here, this book of Leviticus, is not a book that's just set out there on its own, but that it is a continuation of the story that had begun in Genesis. This is part of the story of the redemption of God's people. I mentioned a moment ago, that we were left at the end of Exodus with the tabernacle being covered with the glory of God or the cloud and not even Moses could enter into it. So here's the question. How do the people of God enter the presence of God? Leviticus answers, then the Lord called Moses. Here we are given the answer to that question. The Lord himself answers that question as he calls Moses to himself. And, and I want us to use this here, even though, even though I did a little bit in the, in the introduction, 
I want to use this then as an opportunity to set the context a little further for us so that we might get a sense of the story of redemption. Because when we think of time, we might ask the question, when is this then? What does it follow? Where is it in history? Well, Israel, Israel had been redeemed from their bondage in Egypt and they had wandered They had come to Mount Sinai, and it was here at Mount Sinai, of course, that God gives Moses the law. And it's here at Mount Sinai where the covenant is confirmed. It's here at Mount Sinai where God gives instructions for the building of the tabernacle, this place where God would dwell among his people and where his people would gather to worship the creator of all things. But again, the question is there, isn't it? How do the people approach the all-holy God? Because after all, let's let's set it theologically. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned and fell and all their posterity with them, they had sinned. And we read in verse 24 of chapter 3, God drove out the man and at the east of the garden, and remember that, at the east of the garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, not to be flippant, but here Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. The main question of humanity is what? How do we get back in? How do we get back in? There's a cherubim and a flaming sword that's guarding the way to the gate at the east of the garden. Adam and Eve, away from the presence of God, out of the garden of God, out of Eden, out of the pleasure of God, out of the paradise of God. And again, not to be oversimplistic, but how do they get back in? And again, notice where the gate is. Notice where the cherubim is, the flaming sword that, uh, that turned is on the east side of the garden, guarding the entrance. We go back to Exodus chapter 27 where the instructions for the building of the tabernacle are given. And the Lord goes through what goes on the south side, the north side, and the west side. In fact, it says the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits, 10 pillars, and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east, so now we're on the east side, shall be 50 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. There's only one entrance to the tabernacle. One entrance into the presence of God. Only one gate. And it's on the east side. We are being told here in Leviticus how the people of God get back into the presence of God. And how is that? By way of sacrifice. By way of the shedding of blood. Now, before we get to the if of our next division, I want us to notice another adverb very quickly. God says to Moses, He says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When... Any of you bring an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. While we get to an if here in just a moment, there's a when here first. 
Why do I make, uh, why do I bring that to our attention? Because it's not if you bring an offering. It is when you bring. There is a way prescribed to approach the living God. This is something that our culture needs to be reminded of. Not just our culture out there in the world, but the church culture. You do not come to God on your own terms. We come to the Lord on His terms. We approach Him on His terms. To reference Michael Morales again, he says, This may be called the central theological dilemma and drama of humanity's relationship with God, namely, the danger posed by intimacy with a consuming fire. How can we be intimate with a consuming fire? Now, so that way to approach God is prescribed by God. But when you come, there are some ifs. And Leviticus here teaches us of those. That is to say, not everyone has livestock to bring. Some may not be able to afford that. Some don't have bulls to bring. They only have sheep or goats. And some may not even have that. Some may only have birds to bring. Leviticus, Moses, God understands that we don't all have the same. We don't have the same amount of money. We don't have the same amount of possessions. But what we do have, we bring an offering to him. And so this first chapter of Leviticus describes for us these three types of burnt offerings. When the people come to worship, they come to worship through sacrifice and the work of the priests. And it will be, it will be helpful for us as we continue to 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 work our way through this, but particularly for the first seven chapters, to see chapter one as kind of a general overview of offerings, the specifics of which will then, that will then be worked out through the next six chapters. So we don't have a lot of specifics in chapter one other than these three kind of general types of burnt offerings. And so our, for our purposes this morning, I want us to take an... A, a, um, I want us to take note of a few of those things that we see here. First, and again, there are options here for the burnt offerings. There are, there are similarities, however, among all of them, all three of them. Um, and, and the offering of birds, of course, is a little bit different because it must be because of the, the, difference, in, or the, the difference in the nature of the animal itself. Um, and as well, the Lord does. He spends more time. Uh, on the offering from the herd, because it's the most costly of the three. And yet again, there are similarities between the three that are teaching us these important things. And we notice several things. One, we notice this. We notice the purpose. And um, to which we've already mentioned, really look at verse 3. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord you see, the acceptance of the offering by the Lord, and this is important, the acceptance of the offering um, by the Lord is an acceptance of the person doing the offering. 
It is a reconciliation between God and the sinner. This is further demonstrated in verse 4 where we read, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. You know, we often think of this act, this laying on of the hand in relationship to another offering, in relation to the scapegoat. Uh, in the first service, Brandon spoke about this with the, uh, with the children and, and that idea of the transference of the sin from one to another. And, and that's true. It's true, but it's even more than that. Particularly here in this context, it's not just a transference of the sin from the offerer to the sacrifice, but it is in fact an identifying with the sacrifice. The, the word here that's translated lay is actually, um, and is, is in fact, a, a leaning against. It is a pressing into. And so there is that sense, right, where it relates to what Brandon was telling the children in the first service, the, the weight that one has as the offerer, the sacrifice itself now bears that weight. That's the weightiness of sin, the seriousness of sin and its consequences. But again, the emphasis here is that identification. This person being identified with the sacrifice itself. And, and it's interesting, I remember even... Uh, 20 some years past the time that uh, the church had laid hands on me for ordination. This process of laying hands on, I remember that day where the Presbyterian, I would kneel, I knelt before them and the men would lay hands on me. I remember after the prayer was over that my knees hurt because of the weight that took place with the laying on of hands. This is kind of that picture that's being given here, this pressing into here. And you say, well, why make much of this? Well, notice again what it said in verse 4. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. It is that that sacrifice is in his stead. He deserves what that sacrifice actually gets. What are we getting at here? This is a substitutionary atonement. One in the place of another. This is the importance of the identifying with the sacrifice. And we also see that it's the, and this was interesting to me, we also see that it is the offerer, it is the worshiper who does the slaughtering. I think for a long time I was under the assumption that it was just the priest who did that. But if you read the text, it's not the priest, it's actually the offerer. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. The one giving the offering is the one that is to be reminded of what it takes to make atonement. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine not only bringing your offering, and, and I know this is how we think about it in our terms today, we bring an offering so it's a sacrifice for us. But the sacrifice for us 
is in the fact that we don't get what we're actually bringing. Does that make sense? I'm sacrificing some of my money or my possessions as I bring that offering. But here, here the offer is to sacrifice, yes, in taking one of his bulls and bringing it. He no longer has that, but not only not only is he sacrificing it in that way, he is sacrificing it in that he is called to be the one to slaughter it. To be reminded of the costliness of it. Not just for the sake of the bull, but for his sake. The taking of life, the shedding of blood of an innocent animal so that you might be accepted. And then the priests, the priests then take the blood and they throw the blood against the sides of the altar and notice where that is, that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So again, can you picture the scene? I'm not sure that I that I can properly picture the scene. Somebody asked me about this in between the services. These priests aren't just spreading the blood around the altar. They're not just arranging the blood around the altar. They aren't even sprinkling the blood around the altar. They are throwing the blood against the sides of the altar. The word that's used there is to throw, to cast. Can you imagine the mess? The bloody mess? Talk about primitive. Talk about archaic. Talk about barbaric. What a bloody mess. That makes me want to talk with an Irish accent, by the way, when I say that. The bloody mess. But indeed, and in the midst of the bloody mess, the priest takes the pieces, the head and the fat, and arranges it on the wood that's on fire. Now there are parts of that sacrifice that were unclean, the entrails and the legs, and so they washed them, and then they arranged those as well. And to what end? To the end of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. After all three types of of offerings, verse 9, verse 13, um, verse 17. After all three of these, the same thing, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. How can it be that this is a pleasing aroma to the Lord? I don't mean to be flippant here either, but I know that we have some deer hunters in our midst. I know that we have those who have cleaned their Animals that they have killed. Those smell so good, don't they? If you've never done it, no, they don't. No, they don't. They don't smell real good. And the smell of blood is pungent. The smell of guts is disgusting. How in the world could this be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He likes some nasty smells, doesn't he? No. It doesn't have anything to do with that. 
But we've got to let's answer the question, though, right? So let's move to our last division to answer that question. Since this has been done, God is satisfied. God is satisfied. You know, in the church, we learn, or we at least should be learning, that God doesn't have a body like ours. In the ninth question and answer of the first catechism, the, the children's catechism, uh, there's a couple different children's catechism. This one's called the first catechism, but it's the ninth question and answer. It asks and answers, what is God? And the answer to that, which many of our children could probably answer, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Very good. I saw some kids voicing that while you were out there. God is a spirit and he does not have a, God, uh, a body like ours or like men. So this language of smell... And aroma is, here's a new word, except unless you were in uh, Sunday school, anthropomorphic. That is applying or attributing human characteristics to God so that we might understand him. That's all it is. It sounds really fancy, but that's all it is. It's speaking of God in human terms so that we can get him, so that we can understand what's going on. What's being communicated here with this type of language is that God is pleased with the sacrifice. It has been carried out properly. He accepts the offering that has been given. Now, up to this point, I've not addressed something that must be addressed for us to really understand what's going on here. Um, and bear with me, we're, om we're almost finished. I know with a baptism, it extends our worship time a little bit. It's almost about to be noon. Let's just acknowledge that for just a minute. You're not going to die. It's okay. You can be about 10 minutes later to lunch or whatever it is. So don't tune out. He accepts the offering that he's been given. Now, again, up to this point, I've not addressed something that we really need to address so that we can begin to understand more clearly what's going on and where Leviticus fits in redemptive history. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, we learn, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, some might read that and go, Then what in the world is going on in Leviticus? Why in the world do we even have Leviticus? If the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sins, then why in the world did God have them do this? Were they wrong for doing so? Not at all, because God instituted it. But if it doesn't take away sin, why? Remember the Vav consecutive? Because this is part of the story of God redeeming a people to be his own and what it's going to cost to do so. This is part of that redemptive story. God is preparing his people. He is preparing his people to receive that sacrifice for sin. The one that actually takes away sin. He's preparing his people for the one to come, for that seed of the woman that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would come to restore and to reconcile and who would indeed bring the forgiveness of sin. God is preparing his people.
and the world for this. You see, these worshipers here in Leviticus, they were forgiven and they were cleansed, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but they were cleansed and forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to whom these things pointed. Let's make sure we're clear on that. I see some nods. When they came to offer, they were reminded of what it takes for forgiveness. And as bloody and as tragic as the sacrifice and death of animals might be, brothers and sisters, sinners, it takes a lot more than that to make you right with an all-holy God. It takes the one for whom they were waiting, the Messiah. And it took the one for us on this side who has come, the seed of the woman. Remember the language of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a, does anybody know the next part? Fragrant, what? Offering and sacrifice to God. Same language. Different language. Hebrew and then Greek. but Same idea. Same communication. Jesus is that pleasing aroma. He is the sacrifice and the only sacrifice that is acceptable before the Father. And we are accepted in Him. This is the wonder of the gospel. Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Listen to what he says. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to uh, death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I know, I, I know some people don't like the language. And some of you might not even know that this is being used today. But some people don't like the language, the theological language, contemporary theological language of people saying, you just need to lean into Christ. But brothers and sisters, here is a reality that we cannot escape. You better be leaning into Christ. Because He's your only hope. And when I say leaning into Christ, I mean the same idea here. You better be identifying with Christ Jesus. In His life and in His death, because He is your only hope. His life given for you. His blood shed for you. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Jesus Again, Paul says in Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? By the blood of bulls and goats? Nope. By the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. Let's end here, shall we, with answering the question that, that we've been asking. How do we get back in? Hopefully most of us have gotten that so far. We get it, Chris. We get how we get back in. But here's the gate on the east side of the garden, blocked by the cherubim, flaming sword. The gate on the east side of the tabernacle where none may enter except by what? The blood of the sacrifice that's thrown against the altar on the east side of the gate. And I'll be 
If it's not absolutely amazing that Jesus answers all these questions so clearly for us, what is it that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7? Enter through the narrow, what? Gate. Okay, Jesus, how do we do that? What is the gate? Well, if we've not figured it out yet, he answers it extremely clearly in John chapter 10, where he says, I am the gate. That's pretty clear. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved and he will come in and he will go out and he will find pasture. Brothers and sisters, yes. These sacrifices that we're going to be reading about, they are bloody. And yes, it seems that God is specific and particular about how we approach Him and what makes us acceptable in His sight. But here's the wonder of our holy God is that He is also our gracious God and He has provided a way for us to get back in. The Lord Jesus. The blood of Jesus who says, I am the way the truth, and the life. Let's pray, shall we? Our God in heaven, thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For if not from him, there would be no way. There would be no truth, and there would be no life. And so we rejoice in the gospel of the Lord Jesus this morning. And now we are even reminded once again of what it took. As we come now to the Lord's table, we are reminded of what it took. Jesus' body given for you. For us, for sinners like us, his blood shed for us so that we might live. May we rejoice in that this morning if there are any in our midst that do not, does not know that truth, that it's not identified with the Lord Jesus. May today be the day that they lean into Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.